Welcome to episode 70 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is Mike Mikas, an actor and writer, joining me from Manhattan, New York City. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Jesse, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Mike pitched his way onto the show for an episode about Steven Soderbergh. We're going to be talking about one of his very best films, 2009's The Informant, based on a true story about white-collar crime, but unusual because Soderbergh decided to treat the material as a comedy. We're also going to be talking about the star of The Informant, Matt Damon, who I've always been cheering for as an actor, but this year my allegiances have started to head more towards his partner, Ben Affleck, especially in 2021 when Matt Damon made the curious decision to star in a crypto ad. We're going to be <laughs> speaking about that. But Mike, off air, you were telling me this very funny story about a theory that you guys have about Matt and Ben. A uh, girl who I have been affiliated with, a friend of mine, um, She's going to be listening to the pod, so hello when you're listening to this. But she once told me after uh, we watched, I think it was we watched Ocean's Eleven together, and she said, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck can never both be ascending. If one is on the way up, the other one is on the way down. And uh, after Matt Damon came out and let the world know that he had retired um, using slurs uh, homophobically, uh, and, and we, we famously now call him father of daughters Matthew Damon, um, after that happened, uh, she said, look out, Ben Affleck is going to be having a great rise. And he did, uh, Ana de Armas became a big topic. Jennifer Lopez, everybody's back on the Ben Affleck train and Matthew Damon's stock ironically has never been lower. It seems so, uh, yeah, I don't think they can both be thriving at the same time. And right now we're in the, we're in the cycle of Affleck. So it is what it is. I bet. Yeah. I, I was saying to you off air that I've gone on a personal journey this year with Affleck. Like I did a whole show where I stunted on him for, uh, for the, um, the accountant and, uh, you know, saying what's the matter with Ben Affleck. But by the end of, uh, 2021, I'm team Ben. Yeah. I really liked him in the last duel and I'm really happy for him with JLo and I wish nothing but the best for the man. I think he was the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic. I think I saw The Way Back and possibly contracted the novel coronavirus uh, to watch the, the little remembered Way Back in, I think, March 14th, 2020, before I returned back home to Florida the day after. And I loved it. I thought he was excellent in it. And is it a great movie? You know, maybe not. Who's to say? But did I was I emotionally impacted by Ben Affleck? Yes, I was. And I thought he totally outshone Damon in The Last Duel. A movie I liked, but I thought Damon was certainly the weakest link of the film, personally. So, Mike, before we get going on uh, our discussion about The Informant, let's talk a little bit about Steven Soderbergh. Yes. He's a great American filmmaker. But, and most importantly, he's a prolific great American filmmaker. He works a lot and his batting average is pretty high. Yeah, he's got, uh, I think his 32nd film is the one that's coming out in February with Zoe Kravitz. He's done 31 uh, narrative features. Uh, can't speak on his other features, but uh, he has been one of the most consistent filmmakers of the last 30 years. Uh, he's got some of the best movies of each decade, I think I could go as far as to say. I think the Ocean movies are some of the last great pop films. Uh, I don't really think we make a lot of great pop films anymore. He's got other, I mean, Sex, Lies, and Videotapes is brilliant. I really, I love some of his underrated works. Like, uh, I think Unsane is excellent. I think Magic Mike, uh, I'm from Tampa, so I have to love Magic Mike. Uh, 
Contagion, you know, I think High Flying Bird, which came out in 20, I think 19, the, the basketball movie. He's, what I like about Soderbergh is he's always trying to push the limits of filmmaking. I think filmmaking came so naturally easy to him at such a young age that he's almost become bored with it, which, you know, is why he's retired as many times as he has. But I just think when you can start making movies on iPhones and they still look just as good, if not significantly better than a lot of other artists' best movies, and they're kind of considered minor works by you, that's when you're kind of in a different level as a filmmaker compared to some of your contemporaries. Yeah, like right after Che came out, the two-part Che film, there was talk that he was retiring as a filmmaker at that point, which he said was he was being interviewed by somebody and he made some sort of, you know, emotionally cold comment because he was uh, sort of still smarting from having been fired off Moneyball. He was, he was the original, he has a producer credit still on Mm -hmm. it, but he was, he was actually fired as the director of Moneyball. I would have loved to have seen that because Moneyball is one of like my 40 or so favorite movies. And I think he would have been perfect for it. I'm very happy with the way it turned out. So there are no complaints, but yeah, I know that he had a negative experience with that. And, and I think after that, what did he go on and do? Did he do the behind the candelabra was that what he yeah Yeah. he he did behind the candelabra which is you know an underrated again like a minor Soderbergh it's it's pretty solid you know it's not it's not blowing my mind but it it does the job I think yeah but but anyway so around that time where he was a little bit bitter he he made some sort of offhanded comment that I guess he meant to be a joke you know I'm retiring I'm not going to make movies anymore sort of thing that turned into Steven Soderbergh announces retirement and you know, the ironic thing, though, is that shortly after he made that comment, he went on a tear. And I think since uh, he made Che, he's directed 15 films, mostly features a couple of documentaries. That's not really retiring. No, he's made more movies after his retirement comment, I think, than he did pre-retirement comments. So he's he's actually working harder now. In an interview I, I watched with Soderbergh, he said that one reason why he keeps going from project to project is because the he says the longer amount of time he has to work on a film, it doesn't actually make it better. He actually likes to have a project in development while he's finishing another movie and jumps from film to film. He said that if he had tons of time to finish a movie, the results would be the same. He just wants to get it done. I think there is something to be said. You know, I went I went to school for acting, and I uh, when we would work on scenes, I would have some classmates that'd be like, "We need to work on this," you know three hours twice a week. So six hours a week plus in class. And I, I started to be like, Hey, you know, you're going to over rehearse. We're going to over rehearse the shit out of this. And it's no longer going to have any sort of naturalism. It's we're going to kill it. And I think Soderbergh might be similar in that. It's like what, when it's done, it's done. You know, we move on, we do it, we work, we do the work, but we don't overwork. We, we do what's appropriate for it. And we move on to the next thing. And, uh, and I think, I think there's a lot of filmmakers and actors, writers, whatever that will, overdo it and almost neuter the creativity and the ingenuity of what makes their project so special because they're they're going too almost going too hard at it i kind of respect that soderbergh's just like yep we finished shooting this i finished editing it i know he was editing let them all talk as they were shooting that day he was shooting going back to his you know room on the on the yacht or the cruise ship doing the edits for the day and i think basically he edited that movie in like three weeks and it's a great movie because He's like a workman-like director. He truly is, his his rate of work is impeccable. It, it is what it is, yeah. I understand that Soderbergh isn't much for uh, one million takes of things, that he uh, he 
he is able to sort of identify exactly what he wants. He, um, jumping ahead a little bit to talk about the informant, Matt Damon said that the, the, the big speech that he gives at the end in the courtroom, the direction that he got from Soderbergh was talk to the judge like you just won the Oscar. <laughs> like it's an accept right. an Oscar acceptance yeah. speech. It's great. I mean, he, he, he has, he has a moment where he like pauses, he looks around and kind of smiles at everybody. It's that's great direction. I'd never heard that, but that now, as soon as you say that, I'm imagining that scene again, and that totally checks out. <laughs> Damon said it was terrific directing advice. And that's a really, really funny scene. He's sort of looking around at the, everybody else in the courtroom to see if they're impressed with him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough too, because I, I do think the movie by the end, I don't know if how you feel about it in particular, but I do think the movie is very sad as funny as it is. I think it's deeply pathetic and, embarrassing and so 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 cringeworthy and sad and that's where the comedy comes from but by the end of the film it's almost hard to even enjoy or laugh at him anymore because you just feel kind of so guilty and and bad but that courtroom scene in particular is one of the last like truly funny moments in the movie it is that's yeah that's that's brilliant direction and that totally checks out because it's you know when is Soderbergh not brilliantly directing right the other thing that I love about Soderbergh is not only is he slaving away, knocking out one movie after the next, but he seems to have uh, the same kind of impulse in his own free time. On his website, he's constantly posting his re-edits of famous films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he. Uh, that is one of the more like, insane. Here's things my cut of two thousand and one. Right. I mean, that's that's completely bonkers, and I have yet to. I don't know if you've ever watched any of his edits of the movies uh i have not i've only heard about them and you know i think that's insane i love it i respect the commitment to the bit uh you know trimming the fat from other people's projects sounds exactly like something i would expect him to do uh i have yet to see one though so i'm i probably do need that might be a soderbergh blind spot for me (laughs) very few times have i walked out of a movie theater feeling like things had changed like that the outside world was a little bit different and 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 it just felt like a, the movie had sort of brought come home with me in my mind you know like sure. i went to see i went to see solaris his uh remake. his version yeah. of the solaris film yeah it's solaris is uh soderbergh's remake of the uh tarkovsky mm-hmm. and it it i guess it bears more of a direct resemblance to the source material than the movie does and i thought it was good I certainly thought that it looked great and it felt great, but I remember going home on the subway, everything felt really strange all of a sudden, like the subway felt uh, very, the movie uh, haunted me. It sort of, it sort of changed the way that I went home that night. I don't often feel uh, when I see a movie that like the world is different when I get outside, but I really did have that feeling with Solaris. I, yeah, I like Solaris. I think I felt similarly, it's not even my favorite film of his. It's probably, I think I'm looking at my letterbox list. I would say it's probably my 11th or 12th favorite of his. But when I watched The Girlfriend Experience, which is a very hard to find film, but they did do a, uh, I think they did a Showtime miniseries uh, starring Riley Keough, I think is her, how to say her last name. And she's the lead in the in the, the Showtime series. The series is really strong, but the movie, I remember watching it and kind of just being blown away. He films it with, uh, it's it's about you know sex workers and it's, um it's Sasha Gray. He, he gets an actual pretty notable sex worker to be the lead in it. And I remember watching it and be like, man, this is, this is really interesting and unique. And it kind of opened my eyes up to 
the transactional natures we have uh, with romance in the modern age. And I just, yeah, he's one of those filmmakers that I think you could probably find one movie for everybody that you would blow their minds if they experienced it and maybe see the world and see life and experiences around them in totally different ways. And that's how I felt when I watched The Girlfriend Experience, truly. Really, it was great. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like Solaris, is, it was fine. I didn't love it. But what I did get from it was a real vibe that that um, I had to process afterwards. And that's not nothing for a filmmaker to make you like walk home differently. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like I... There's a lot of films that I've seen that are far more competently made or, you know, technically, you know, quote unquote, crafted better than the girlfriend experience. But I was like, man, this one really is sticking out in my head in a way that a lot of films that might be better have not. And I think a lot of times you get caught up in, you know, the quality of a movie, the the technical quality. And we we forget that filmmaking and art is supposed to make us feel things. And, and Soderbergh, I think, is very good at evoking strong, particular emotions. It's why he's one of my favorite directors. Here's one question I have about uh, when he says that he shoots a movie on an iPhone. I always wonder what what the set looks like. Is there a set with like 30 or 40 crew members and then like a tripod with a phone on it? Right. Yeah. I <laughs> I I can't imagine. It's it's weird too because whenever you watch, you said you haven't uh, watched a lot of his newer his his most recent features, right? His last two. I'm a, I'm behind on the last couple. Yeah. Yeah. No sudden move feels. I don't want to call his other movies not so much movies, but No Sudden Move feels far more theatrical and like I could imagine there being a true set for that one. But when you watch something like High Flying Bird or uh, Let Them All Talk, like I can't imagine there's more than 12 people around kind of just watching him hold the iPhone. I, I'm pretty sure Let Them All Talk was like a very small crew of like less than 20. And High Flying Bird kind of feels similar where it's like it's kind of just a couple people in a room in a bunch of different scenes of people in rooms. Uh, so not that there's not as much work to be done when he's using the iPhone, but like with no sudden move, there's some, you know, he's kind of showing off that technical prowess again. So I have to imagine there's a a crew there, but for some of the other ones, yeah, I I assume he's making them smaller projects because it's probably easier to manage when you're holding an iPhone, you know, X pro or whatever the hell they are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you're speeding along, uh, and Soderbergh's worked at both ends of, uh, filmmaking like he's worked on expensive period pieces he's worked on big blockbusters and he's worked on tiny little films on a boat yeah it's he's he's extremely versatile i love that you know every movie is an indictment of capitalism and as it should be uh but so he's very constant in his thematic messaging but he he can make the smallest most quiet independent movie he can make a a period drama about you know shay he can he can do a movie about like uh the basketball lockout or he can make an oceans movie and you know all of those very very widely different in their scope uh so he seems kind of limitless in what he's able to accomplish he can accomplish kind of whatever he wants to set his mind out to it seems like but when soderbergh won the palm door for sex lies and videotape he had like one of the all-time great acceptance speeches where he went up on the on the stage to accept the palm door. And he said, well, I guess it's all downhill from here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you're doing that, when you're 26 years old, he's probably not (laughs) wrong. I mean, truly (laughs) his speech when he won for traffic. And he was also, I think nominated for Aaron Brockovich the same year he was like going against himself, but his speech for traffic and the Oscar is an incredible Oscar speech. It's one of the really notable and memorable ones to go back and watch whenever I, whenever I viewed it. 
I thought that his speech when he won for traffic was very inspirational for anybody trying to get anything made. Exactly. Right. It was very, it was a commendable and just, yeah, I'm as an artist, I, I love whenever anybody's propping up trying to create creation is, you know, one of the best things we can do. So I loved, yeah, that speech means a lot to me. There are very few filmmakers who had two of the five best picture nominees in one year. Coppola did it for the conversation and Godfather two. Soderbergh did it for Aaron Brockovich and traffic. It may have happened one other time in history. Yeah. It's, it's a very small list. I can't, I'm trying to think of who the other one would be and I cannot actually think of it. So yeah, I, it, it does not happen often. Uh, but he's, he's also, what I like about him is he's very beloved in the community. I don't really know anybody who like, doesn't like Soderbergh, uh, anybody like on Twitter, anybody who I know in real life, there's nobody who, you know, bitches about Soderbergh. I've got friends who, unfortunately, when I say friends, but like, you know, people who love the Marvel movies and they're like, Oh, Martin Scorsese just makes the gangster movies. And I'm like, okay, you know, I can't get rid of these people, get get them out of your life. You don't, you don't choose who you work with. You know, it is, these are, I can't control my coworkers. (laughs) (laughs) Can you agree? You can grease the stairs at work or something. Get, get rid of them somehow. (laughs) Yeah, no, let them, let them slide down to the basement and, and get stuck in the kitchen. Um, but I know people who have that opinion. I don't really know anybody who has anything. He's kind of in that Paul Thomas Anderson category where both of them kind of – nobody really shits on either of them. Nobody has anything bad to say about them. So it was cool to see when he won the Oscar. How everybody was very seemingly uh, excited for him. And I guess anytime anybody wins an Oscar, they're always clapping for them. But it, it seemed like it was a very genuine reaction to Soderbergh winning. Like this guy really deserves it. I mean, he is great. So it's magnificent that he gets to win. I don't know. I felt, I felt a genuineness from the Academy that year when he did win. The first thing that's going to happen is the company lawyers are going to come to all the executives with a list of attorneys for you to pick from. Now, you've got to understand, these attorneys are paid for by ADM. They don't represent you. Do not pick one of these attorneys. That's when you tell them that you have your own attorney. Once it starts, it is going to be intense. They are going to know that somebody was on the inside working with us, and they're going to do almost anything to find out who it is. But you guys still think I'm going to be okay at the company, right? I mean, you guys are gonna, you know, take down the bad guys, but I'll be okay, right? <clears throat> Tell them. You're cooperating with the government, yeah, right? Yeah, no, okay. I know, but I mean, I'm just asking if you guys think I'm gonna be okay at the company. This thing well, should... I think the corporate culture is gonna change a little bit for you. I should you. say so. Let's segue over to talk about the informant. Yes. Um, I wanted to tell you one interesting story I read about Soderbergh. He said that one theme in this movie is the role that lying has in our lives. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, that's interesting. I guess when you when you say the role that lying has, I I don't know if it's as much as lying. I mean, it's it is lying. Obviously, what it is is lying. But it's it's I don't want to call him insane, but it's like it's really clear mental illness, and he's really he's a suffering individual. So it is lying, but it's like I. I think when I think of lying, I think of there's like a, 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 an intent to deceive. And I don't know when I watch the movie, and maybe it's because of the unreliable narrator in the whole you know, film. I don't know if I get the idea that when Mark is lying to people that he's trying to do it to trick them and be nefarious. And that's kind of what I think of lying as is, is there's a nefariousness to it. I think that he genuinely, when he's saying these things, believes what he's saying because he he's not thinking clearly. He's, he's got issues that he needs to you know get help for, right? Mm-hmm. But – the why this material appeal to him so much is uh, that to a certain extent, we're all lying all the time. And when you're a filmmaker, you're lying. 
You know, when people ask you, uh, how was the movie? How was the shoot today? You lie and say it was great, you know, <laughs> or <laughs> like when you're trying to convince somebody to give you money to make a movie, you kind of have to lie to them to a certain extent. You have to, you have certainly have to misrepresent the, the real story. Yeah. Uh, I don't, and he doesn't even mean that as a human failing. It's just the fact is that, uh, we lie all the time in so many ways. And Soderbergh said that, um, one of the things that uh, he experienced when he was a kid, he went through this very intense phase when he was about 12, where he habitually shoplifted. Okay. And he said it was for no reason except to feel guilty and to test his boundaries. It was a phase that was very intense for a few months in his life, and then it just went away. And he also said that, you know, that's some of the worst stuff he ever did, that he got out of his system when he was a child. But he got the idea that... um that he had to experience that fear. You know, he, he sort of made himself feel guilty and made himself uh, commit a crime, like a, a petty crime. But uh, it was just, um, it was something that haunted him in his life. It's funny that the most anti-capitalist, one of the most anti-capitalist filmmakers I can think of is worst thing that he can think of is that he used to steal from like Walmart or CVS when he was like younger. That's, <laughs> that's very amusing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that, that fully checks out. I don't know. I I am a sucker for movies where people think that they are smarter than the people around them and they try and get away with crime. Uh, it's like a Coen Brothers thing, and I'm, I'm actually not as high on the Coen Brothers as I should be, but I know the, the common thing with this film is they're like, this is Soderbergh making a Coen Brothers film. And I do think that's a pretty accurate take in that uh, Mark Whitaker is not very smart, uh, you know, maybe capable, but certainly uh, has flawed intentions and goes about his intentions uh, in a pretty idiotic manner. And it's fun to just watch somebody make their bed and have to lie in it. I don't know. I it's it's one of the the great joys is watching it kind of all tumble down in the end. And then I guess not really because he ends up being a, a CEO somewhere else like years later, but. <laughs> That's the American dream, though. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> basically. You know, uh, I actually, Mark Whitaker, the uh, subject of this film, he's he's a real guy, and he's still with us. And uh, just to amuse myself, I went to his website, because he has a sort of crude, uh, you know, like, GeoCities-looking website. <laughs> That's his home site, homepage. In his bio, he's bragging all about his achievements and uh, everything and totally avoids the fact that he was like charged with 45 counts of tax evasion and, and money laundering and, and uh, embezzlement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would really be fascinated to see what he thinks about this movie. I, you know, when you watch the film, the guy probably is a narcissist or has some kind of bad narcissistic qualities. Do you think he just watches and goes, Hey, Matt Damon's playing me in a movie. Like that's, that's awesome. Or, or do you think he watches it and is deeply ashamed? I really, I don't know. Cause it seems, you know, he doesn't seem to have a lot of shame, uh, <laughs> in the film. So I'm very curious. I would be very curious to see what his perspective is on the whole film. Yeah. That's why I went to his website to see, and, uh, and he had nothing. whether he, he didn't really acknowledge it. No, he, <laughs> he talks more about these. Oh man. <laughs> he, he talked more about um, the book than than the film oh, okay. adaptation. Yeah, and, uh, the Kurt the Kurt book, and I have not read it. I have, I don't know how accurate the the movie is to the book, but it's I'm pretty sure you've got some interesting things that you feel about Kurt himself. So 
We'll get the elephant in the room out of the way before we begin. <laughs> the Informant is a freewheeling adaptation of a nonfiction book called The Informant with no exclamation point. A true story by Kurt Eichenwald. Uh, <laughs> people on Twitter may know uh, Kurt Eichenwald. He's had very he's had several normal ones on Twitter. Uh, he's he's done some pretty spectacular crazy things on twitter uh he's a you know he's a accomplished journalist a lot of the reporting and the enron scandals and stuff was all eichenwald but in the last few years especially in the trump era he got a a a very serious case of galaxy brain uh you know angry uh, angry lib kind of galaxy brain stuff um there are three incredible kurt eichenwald stories for for uh, let me just bring you up to speed. There was the time that um, he accused a Trump supporter of trying to kill him on Twitter by sending him a strobing uh, video. Uh, Eichenwald had uh, had has been diagnosed with epilepsy, and he went on Tucker Carlson with this crazy allegation that Donald Trump had been institutionalized in a mental hospital for a nervous breakdown. He was trying to uh, stop Trump from getting the nomination. How honorable. So he- so, well, good for him, but it didn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he there's this famous 10-minute uh, clip of, of him yelling at Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson, this was before Tucker Carlson was as bad as he is now. I mean, he was bad. But um, I can, well, I mean, now nobody would go on, nobody on the left or center left would go on the Tucker Carlson show. This was back when people wanted to confront him on the air. Uh, anyway, it was, a, it was a bit of a train wreck. Um, and in retaliation, one of Trump's supporters sent Eichenwald a tweet that was a strobing image of Pepe the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> like Eichenwald saw the video, but and, and he didn't see it enough to have like a major epileptic seizure. He had a localized seizure. But the famous tweet was that his wife supposedly tweeted a response to this tweet that said, this is his wife. You caused a seizure. I have your information and I have called the police to report the assault. We're laughing, but this is attempted murder. This is terrible. (laughs) No, I know, but it's just so crazy. Like, you you call the police. You don't tweet to the guy who uh, did it to say, I'm going to go after you, man. The crazy thing is this is not even the best wife-related tweet uh, from Mr. Eichenwald. (laughs) It's like, why don't you actually just call the police instead of tweeting? And also, uh, Eichenwald tried to get Twitter to reveal the identity of the account, and he filed a legal claim. And uh, Eichenwald tweeted, I'm coming for you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> but then a year later, Eichenwald, who was working for Newsweek and Vanity Fair, he posted this image that he took of an anti-Semitic flyer that he'd found on Twitter to prove its authenticity. But in the background of the photograph was his laptop, and you could see the open tabs. And one of them was for hentai porn. <laughs> and so when that started going around, Eichenwald tweeted, Believe it or not, my kids and I were trying to convince my wife that tentacle porn existed. I tried to find some to show her it was real. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the best one, and that's that's how I discovered this man. I I I was aware of him beforehand, but that I think that also got tweeted at like eleven forty eight a.m. It wasn't even like at like eight p.m. It was like fully in the morning or like afternoon. It's such an insane and unhinged thing to tweet. And it was he was the main character that day. He happened to be the main the main character of Twitter for for twenty four hours. But <laughs> well, the other thing Eichenwald did was he posted a screenshot of a text message exchange he'd had with his wife to prove that uh, it was just an innocent uh, 
you know, Google search, not him <laughs> looking at tentacle porn. But he, but the screenshot, it said, Teresa, I'm sorry, this is a stupid question. Were our adult sons trying to prove to you that tentacle porn exists? And it said, yes. <laughs> like, like, I was like, I could, well, you actually wrote adult sons in your tweet. <laughs> <laughs> like, honey, are, did it, were our adult sons looking at tentacle porn? Like, <laughs> there's no way you could fake that. No, no, that's 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 what's so perfect about it. It's so authentic and so genuine that you know this is how this man is. You know. And speaking of adult sons, uh, he also wrote this tweet in 2012, and it said, "My son is with two S's." an international gold medalist black belt in Kung Fu. He's built like a Marine. He can take down an untrained guy two times his size. It's like, why are you boasting about your, <laughs> your large adult son? Right. <laughs> oh my anyway. God. Well, thankfully, he wrote a book. <laughs> so he wrote, he wrote The Informant, which got turned into a comedy. <laughs> but I saw uh, this movie in 2009 when Eichenwald wasn't like a Twitter <laughs> superstar yet. Um, I don't know what Eichenwald privately or ultimately made of the fact that this very serious book that he wrote about this true life white collar crime was turned into a comedy by Soderbergh. Um, he did say that there is nothing in the movie that's not in the book. So that was uh, charitable of him. Okay. He also yeah. said that the book is a thriller with comedic drama, like dramatic incidents that are kind of funny but that the movie is a comedic thriller with some drama, which I think is a good way of describing it. Yeah, completely. I think, too, the reason the movie is so funny, I mean, Soderbergh casts comedians, the cast is just littered with, you know, actual comedians, but the the voiceover is ultimately part of what makes the movie, when I started watching it, I was like, this voiceover is insane. I just kept laughing out loud. The book, you're missing all of that. You're missing, I'm assuming you're missing all of that because I'm, I'm assuming it's not like a narrative book. It's just a uh, documentation of everything that happened. So yeah, I cannot imagine the book being funny at all. And I'm grateful that Soderbergh, I think probably smartly made it into the genre that it should be. Well, he wanted to distinguish this movie from other whistleblower dramas. Um, he said that, you know, he already made one with Aaron Brockovich. He didn't want to make a drama like The Insider like he needed to be able to differentiate this film from films of that nature. And I guess it occurred to him that you don't really see comedies about whistleblowers. And also there are so many things that happen in this movie that are objectively funny. He made the decision to actually go for it and lean into it. Yeah. I think, I don't know that this material works if you don't, I mean, I'm sure it would have been probably fine, probably gets like an Oscar nomination. I think if, if it had been not a comedy, I think it would have been the type of movie that maybe you or I would have looked and been like, I know what this movie is before ever having watched it because I've watched the trailer and I know exactly beat for beat what's going to happen by subverting uh, the expectations of, of the whistleblower genre. I think he it served to make a far more uh, enjoyable and superior product than you know the standard biopic uh, whistleblower movie. I think those are done to death and we don't need any more of them. And I think Soderbergh was smart for avoiding that. I'll tell you how I saw this movie. I got to see it as a work in progress. It was mostly finished. Back when I worked for the Toronto Film Festival, I was part of a screening committee. I think uh, it's safe to say 12 years later, it's safe to reveal this, that I used to be on 
the committees that uh, chose films for the galas and the special programs. Um, so every once in a while, I got to see a movie months before anybody else. And one of them was The Informant. Uh, when you're on the screening committee, you sort of give your notes to the programmers mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, say what you think, uh, if you have any recommendations for where it should be placed in the festival. I enjoyed The Informant, but I said in my notes that this is a this is the kind of Soderbergh movie that really needs a festival launch because it has a it's there's so many anti-commercial elements to it. It has this unusual tone. It has what appear at certainly at first to be distancing devices like the music <laughs> feels so uh, jaunty. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like old timey kind of music and uh, it has an unreliable narrator and it's a movie star who looks unappealing and unflattering, who makes very terrible choices. It's the kind of movie that needs a film festival launch to sort of, uh, as opposed to just putting it out in theaters. Uh, right. I think it needs uh, the pedigree of a you know festival launch. The word that's of what mouth. I wrote in my notes. I liked it, but I thought that it's the it's a movie that uh, actually needs to be handled with care. Also, Maybe. it's about it's a comedy about someone with bipolar disorder. Ultimately, your sensibilities probably too are uh, probably far from the standard uh, or the mainstream opinion. So it's not shocking that you would like it. Uh, but I could imagine showing this to people who like my mom, you know, we watched a lot of movies together during the pandemic and, you know, my mom has some good film taste. I'm trying to not be insulting to my mother here, but she's not, you know, she's not streaming stuff off the criterion channel, like regularly by any means. Uh, and she watches, she's like, this is insane. And she was laughing and she was like, no, I really liked it. But I could have imagined if my mother just like put that on accidentally without me being around that she would have been like, what the hell is this? And just turning it off. It's very much, it's like the least probably one of the least commercial Soderbergh projects ever. It's like not sexy at all. It's not cool. It's not, it's not some fun heist thriller. It's like very, very um, flat and not even in a way that is to insult like the camera work or the cinematography, but it's not a, uh, it's not exciting really. It's not particularly, it's kind of just people in rooms talking about, uh, you know, fructose levels and, and, and price fixing. It's not, it's not very fun. It's not something that like the normal mainstream audience would ever get a joy out of, I would imagine. So your notes are probably, were probably, you know, very astute and I hope they listened to you and, and did put it at a festival as opposed to just premiering it in theaters. Cause if it went straight to theaters, I'm sure it flopped. It did all right, actually. I don't know how much it cost, but it made about $45 million. That's not bad oh, for probably, a, a movie that's a hard sell. Yeah, there's no way. I, that had to be a box office hit then, because I don't think this movie could have cost more than $10 million to make. I mean, I could be wrong, but there's nothing, there's no crazy explosions or anything. This probably didn't require a big crew. I'd be very curious what box office mojo would say the uh, the budget is. But Quickly. Che- are you checking? I am. Let's, I'm looking it up right now as we as we speak. Let's play the prices right. I say uh, fifteen million. Okay, so I've always heard uh, that the budget has to also be doubled for advertising, but I don't feel like this was a movie that got a lot of advertising. So the no. budget that's listed is twenty one million. If we're going to oh, double okay. it, that'd be forty two with advertising. But it was probably like thirty million, maybe, and they probably profited like fifteen mil. So hey, you know what? The version of the movie that I saw was missing the opening disclaimer, which is a funny one. It begins with white text on a black screen. While this motion picture is based on real events, 
Certain incidents and characters are composites, and dialogue has been dramatized. So there. <laughs> I always forget. I, I always I the the, <laughs> the lasting image I have is of him driving down. I think the first sequence in the movie is him in the car with his son, just like talking about like corn or something, and that's I just you know, can imagine my mother and my best friend's reactions. Just like, what, what are we starting these movies about corn and the, the record player playing this really old timey, like weird, like music that feels like it's from like the thirties or forties, but no, yeah. it does. It opens with that very hard. So there, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, I like, um, the, the, the film that I just did a show on called Z has a similar sort of, uh, unusual disclaimer because those disclaimers are usually there to keep you out of legal trouble. Right. Like they, you know, this movie has been, you know, some, any similarity to persons and events is coincidental kind of stuff. But this movie is like, here's what we have to say because the lawyers told us we have to put this in. (laughs) (laughs) And it's uh, perfect for Soderbergh to be so flippant about it. It it, It's perfect. (laughs) But only certain incidents and characters are composites because this movie uh, is in that, that rarefied air of movies that get to call the bad guys by their names, like the Archer Daniels Midland Company is a major American corporation. Right. Uh, you know, and they were engaged in price fixing. And this movie doesn't pretend, you know, it's not Globochem or whatever. It's, uh, it's a real uh, named company and Mark Whitaker's a real person. Yeah, I think what's... <laughs> What's really funny too, when you when you finish the movie, like he is, you know, Mark Whitaker is objectively not a very good person, but I don't even think he's the villain. I mean, I think we are still supposed to finish the film with the idea that like the companies are really evil, and as as much as it is a failing of a singular human in in some of his actions, the system is set up to for 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 everybody to fail, for for anybody mm-hmm. to have been in Mark Whitaker's position, he actually is doing a. Uh, funny enough, a, a noble thing, what he's trying to expose, he's just acting completely insane and unhinged in his way of trying to get to that point. But I don't know that it's fair to call him a villain. I, the people involved around him are far more nefarious and kind of villainous and monstrous than he is, easily, I think. Well, he makes that point throughout the movie is like, you know, uh, whatever I'm money I guy. took, these guys, I'm, I'm a white hat. I'm a, I'm the guy I'm who blew hat. the whistle. Yeah. I'm the guy who blew the whistle on these guys. These guys, uh, they're not going to get the same prison sentence I'm going to get, you know, like, but at the same time, it's like, you're all bad people. Right, right, right. <laughs> One of you is, uh, you know, you're stealing from bad people, but you're still committing a crime. You're still a bad person, right. <laughs> it's like if anything it's more about uh the sort of the kinds of people that wind up in white collar crime you know like there's still a hierarchy just because you're not in charge doesn't mean that you're not you know a, you're not uh also committing crimes no they're they're all awful it is uh but i, <laughs> I he did get he did get the raw end because the the people he was right the people at the top served less time than him and that's insane because they were worse than him you know, but yeah. I don't like wool on skin. Not even that merino wool they have at Marshall Field in Chicago. Ginger likes it because it's form-fitting, but she likes avocados, and who wants that texture in their mouth? Who would make up someone named Regina? It's the capital of Saskatchewan. The one thing that really put me off and, and uh, when I was first watching The Informant and I was trying to get a grip on what kind of movie it is, is that it has a score by Marvin Hamlish, 
it was, as it turned out, his final music score. But he's a veteran uh, American film of composer. Of a chorus line fame, Marvin Hamlin. Yeah, of, of a chorus line. And he, he, many of the Bond movies have gotten Oscar nominations for their songs or Oscar wins. But only one Bond movie got nominated for the original score, and that was the one that Marvin Hamlish did for The Spy Who Loved Me. Okay, interesting, so, yeah. And he did the music for The Sting and the chorus line. Right. The music that he delivers for Soderbergh is is sort of off-putting music. Like, it sounds like a 70s sitcom or something. Yeah, it's very, very, I think I said quaint earlier, but it is like so, it's so unsexy and so just... Ugh. It it when it starts playing right at the beginning of the movie, I I just sat back and I was like, "What is this? Like, what is this? This is the score of like a Matt Damon led Steven Soderbergh movie. This makes no sense." And then when I looked at the letterbox credentials later. I was like, "Oh, Marvin Hamlish. This you know checks out, and this is so purposeful." And you know, I Soderbergh's not you said handled with care, but Soderbergh all of this is handled with care. It's very intentional uh, what it is, but it really does cause and create this super kind of alienating and off-putting effect um, musically. It's not inviting at all, at all. And and this is what dawns on us over the course of the movie. Like I can see somebody who isn't really interested in the movie being turned off immediately by it because it's off-putting. It's, uh, it, it just sounds like they put the music from, uh, you know, a late 60s uh, variety show as the music of this movie. Like it's really peppy and jaunty. And I actually learned a term when I was doing my research, have you ever heard of the Minsky pickup? I have not. Please enlighten me. You know this song as soon as I, I sing it for you. It's uh, it's an intro of music where you know that comedy is coming. And it's this. Yep, sure. So it's from vaudeville and burlesque shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like, and you hear the Minsky pickup about six times in this movie. <laughs> like there are all these scenes where Matt Damon's walking around the office being really suspicious and you just hear what the hell am I watching is sort of right. how I felt when I was when I had was trying to process this movie the way I described it is that they used to make movies in the early 70s that were set in the 30s and it was that kind of music like like it's like what the hell right <laughs> but it's a it's a key uh, to the fact that this uh, this guy is a little bit disturbed. Yeah, it's 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 so sad. It really like the more I've, I think I've watched The Informant now four times in the last year, two years, because I watched it to start my 2021. So, I, yeah, I've probably seen it four times since then because it really stuck with me just because of how bizarre it was. And I was like, I got to show other people this movie. It's really fucking weird. Uh, and once I knew I was going to be doing the pod, I rewatched it and I watched it with a friend and I watched it with a, uh, another person. And it is so sad and it is so pathetic. He really is like a pathetic is, is endearing. He really is endearing and sad. I don't know. I, I have a weird or not a weird, I, I don't have a weird uh, fascination with him, but I just have this weird empathy for him uh, Mark Whitaker in particular, like that's how effective Soderbergh is as a filmmaker that I, I find myself rooting for him and wanting to see him succeed despite knowing that he is kind of scum, but it's not really his fault because he's got, he's bipolar and it's hard to, you know, I guess I've got bipolar friends and they're not out, you know, robbing $11 million from like large corporations. So it's not fair to use bipolar as an excuse, but 
he's mentally, he needs help. He certainly needs help. And that's very evident as the movie goes on and on. And it's hard not to feel, I think, a little bit uh, sad for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Mike, do you want to take a shot at describing the basic plot of The Informant? Yeah, I'll take a shot. I'll take a shot at trying to describe the basic plot of The Informant. Um, so The Informant is a Steven Soderbergh film, and it stars. Uh, it's about Mark Whitaker, who is uh, played by Matthew Damon, father of daughters Matt Damon, and he is a rising star at the Archer Daniels uh, Midland office. Uh, he has a family. He uh, <laughs> he's got a wife. She's very supportive. She's played. I cannot think of the actress's name, but she is. It's Melanie Linsky. Yeah, she's. Uh, I, I recognize her from Two and a Half Men because she plays Rose. She's Charlie Sheen's uh, hookup regularly in the, the, the famous Two and a Half Men sitcom from uh, CBS. But um, funny actress. She's she's his wife, and he works for this office. Uh, and there is an issue that the FBI is dealing with with their company, and he is under the impression that they are now discovering that he's kind of committing crimes for this company. So he goes to the FBI and is kind of like, I'm just going to volunteer this information to you guys unprompted. And he does. And once he does, the FBI, uh, you know, tries to get him to be a whistleblower. So he's wearing a wire. He's going around, uh, you know, talking to his business partners, trying to get information. He's in meetings and he's trying to be like, so are we agreeing? This is what collusion? Like he, he's trying to get them to say these, these words out loud that will indict them and, and get them in trouble with the FBI he is mildly successful. Uh, I would actually say he's fairly successful, but the issue is that the company discovers that he is also forging documents and writing checks for himself and embezzling money, lots of money. I think the number by the end of the film comes out to being like $11 million. And there's an ongoing bit, like each time he's sitting down with a group of lawyers, it's like, oh, it's $3 million. And then it's, oh, it's $6 million. It's $9 million. Oh, it's $11 million. And it kind of keeps adding up and up, but he is he's profiting off of the system. He thinks that he's innocent because he's like, well, everybody else is doing it, so... Why wouldn't I be allowed to do it? But uh, it kind of all blows up in his face. And then once he no longer has the FBI on his side, he starts going to various you know, local newspapers, you know, journalists, uh, the news, trying to share his side of the story. He stages he, – he does a whole staged – in one of my favorite sequences in the movie where he, he acts as if he was thrown into the back of a, uh, of a, a vehicle and uh, kidnapped and threatened by – by ADM or the FBI, he kind of just accuses everybody, he goes full scorched earth, and uh, you know it comes out by the end of the movie that he's bipolar, and the voiceover that we're hearing the whole time has been his kind of bipolar thoughts uh, speaking uh, and informing him of his actions and his decisions. But uh, it ends with him serving jail time, confessing, uh, you know, doing his Oscar speech to the <laughs> to the courtroom, and. Uh, by the end of it, he gets out and he goes and he's now CEO at another company. So I, I think if I were to describe the movie, that would be my best go at it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's I, I I'm used to seeing a movie with a big twist. But they're almost always uh, psychological thrillers or dramas. You don't often see a movie that pulls the rug out from under you. That's a comedy. Right. I think the I, I've long said that of all the voiceovers I've seen in movies, I'm not a voiceover fan, but if you're, if you're a particularly good director, you can get away with it. If you're Martin Scorsese, a Soderbergh, you know, whoever, uh, I think this is the best use of voiceover ever. It's very funny. It's, I think hilarious the entire movie. And then it's very, very disarming when you actually realize what is happening. Uh, and it's kind of pulled the, like you said, the rug is pulled out from you with maybe like 
eight or nine minutes left in the movie. It's very much right at the end of it. And then when you go back and rewatch it in subsequent rewatches, the voiceover and the idea that it's his bipolar, you know, voice is speaking to him comes far more potent and far more effective in, uh, in establishing the, the tone and the mood of the film. I don't know. I, I think it's masterfully done and you're right in, in comedy films. I, I can't think of another one in my head that, that so effectively has a, a shocking twist. It was one of the more shocking experiences I've had watching a movie. And I think that's why it stuck with me so much. Toro. That's what the Spanish bullfighters say, but it's also what the Japanese call the high end tuna sushi. Toro. Raw fish. Who went first on that one? The guy without the grill. I've been to Tokyo. They sell little girl underwear in the vending machines right on the main drag, the Ginza, or whatever. Guys in suits buying used girl panties. How is that okay? That's not okay. You think the automobile companies can't make a car tomorrow that gets 100 miles to the gallon? You think the TV networks don't know who's going to win the World Series before the season starts? Paranoid is what people who are trying to take advantage call you in an effort to get you to drop your guard. I read that the other day in an in-flight magazine. At the beginning of the movie, we're aware that the voiceover that Mark is uh, speaking, he says a lot of stuff during the film, and almost all of it is neither here nor there. <laughs> like he's, he's, uh, he's uh, developing this elaborate backstory of his own life. Like he talks about how his parents died in an auto accident right. <laughs> and he was adopted by a rich man. And I, I a had job. a very lucky break. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But we, yeah. st- we also start noticing that there are inconsistencies in all the personal myth building that he's been saying about his own life. Like he contradicts himself a few times. And uh, he, he, we realize that, uh, we're used to in narration being told what's happening. This is a movie that where we're being told in narration stuff to keep our eyes off the ball. Right. Like, yep. Like, and then at the, towards the very end of the movie, we realize that the narration is actually the voice inside his own head. Because when the lying that he's been doing is finally being called out, and the FBI guys who he's been straining along for the entire movie, Scott Bakula, they just yeah. finally say, like, stop lying. Why are you lying? And then we hear the voiceover saying, I'm not lying. You know, like. <laughs> and he, and he tries to repeat. He tries to say the words of the, for the first time in the movie. You hear the voiceover and he goes to say out loud what the voiceover saying. Because all throughout the rest of the film, you hear the voiceover, but we don't hear him saying his voiceover out loud in real life. This is the first time it happens. And you're like, oh, shit. Oh my word! That's what this voiceover has been this whole time. It, yeah, it it was. It, I I felt like it was mind blowing when it happened. It really was. Yeah, uh, I guess I always div- divide uh, voiceover in movies as in two categories: one where they wrote all the voiceover in the screenplay, and then the other where they're using voiceover to patch up the the logic flaws and uh, and uh, the heavily edited. Uh, final cut of a movie they, they will often have to add narration to make it make sense right uh i enjoy voiceover when it's organic when it's actually part of the structure of the film and so i'm positive that all the voiceover in this movie was all written out in the oh absolutely one one thousand percent and it's it it is a credit to damon i think it's some of the strongest work of his career is the is the voiceover work that he does all through the movie because it is it really is hilarious. I mean, it's 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 some of the most insane batshit stuff. He has a whole thing about like edible panties in like Japan, just like on a random tangent. He just starts talking about edible panties, and you're like, "What is this guy? What are you talking about?" It's so or, funny. 
or saying what the German word for a pen is. Yeah, yeah, that's like one of like the first things in the whole movie. That's like one of the, in the first two minutes. He's like, um, I don't, I was about to just say Doofenshmirtz. I don't fucking know what a pen is in German, but he just says it. He's like, that's what this is in German. He's like, uh, you know, what is it an automobile? He just, he's just talking. He's just, you, you, you just, you eventually. When I was watching, I was just like, this dude's crazy, and I'm just like in for the ride, and this is funny. He's just like a a wacky guy. And by the end, it's like, oh no, <laughs> no, he needs he needs help. He needs to talk to somebody and maybe get like some a psych, psych- a psychiatrist to to help him out. <laughs> well, and the other thing that's cool about this movie is that we're so used in uh, whistleblower dramas for the scene where the corporation tries to discredit the witness. Uh, you know, like in a movie like The Insider, when Jeffrey Wigand uh, agrees to go on 60 Minutes to talk about the tobacco company's uh, shady uh, business practices, they get their private detectives out and, you know, are able right. to say that the guy uh, beat his wife, first wife or, you know, he got fired for, uh, you know. Establishing, taking away credibility, basically. Taking away credibility. So uh, we're assuming that that's what's happening here. But then we discover that, in fact, Matt Damon has been embezzling all this money from the company. And he uh, he incrementally keeps uh, owning up to it. Like at the beginning of the film, when he finally says to the FBI guys, what if I was, <laughs> there was some money and whatever. Like, what if I was, a, what if I were to tell you that I, that I might've taken some money and they're like, how much? And he says, uh, f- well, let's say $500,000 by the end of the movie, it's $11 million. And I think he actually starts, he's like, what would it be like if, you know, we used the company card to like pay for gas to take our kid to like vacation or something. And then he's like, well, what if it was the same, but it was like on a plane and they're, they're like, well, you know, you know, nobody's going to really get too bothered about that. And then he's like, what if it was $500,000? And, and then you see uh, Joel McHale and Scott Bakula, like kind of, I think they're at like a diner and they like kind of set their coffee down. Like, what the, what are you, what are you talking about? We did not know this. Cause it's, I think at that point they're three or four years into the investigation when he like drops yeah. that bombshell on them. It invalidates their whole case kind of gets fucked. It gets thrown out the window, you know? And they have put so much on the line for him. There's that really funny uh, scene where you just realize just how naive. Uh, well, the, I guess it, naive isn't even quite the word for it. How trusting they are of uh of damon at one point one of their superiors is like wondering what's going on with damon like why is he so willing to testify he's on a he's on a career track at adm why would he throw it all away by agreeing to be a whistleblower and then they pull a picture of uh whitaker and his wife and kids and they say we carry this picture around with us wherever we go because this is a real person with a real family you know and like this is what it's all about but he's been bullshitting them the whole time and i love how um, there's like one scene after another of these FBI guys just realizing that this guy is uh, just gone. He is (laughs) like, they have hitched their wagon to the wrong horse. There's that great scene where they're all arguing outside in the parking lot, in like the the driveway, in the driveway. And he was like, who did you tell? Who You weren't supposed to tell anyone. Who did you tell? And he said, well, I might've told my secretary. He's like, she had to know, you know, I, when I'm, when I'm busy today and I've, I've got, I've got stuff to do and I can't come in, she had to know that the raid was going to be happening. He's like, you know, we can trust, we can trust Kelly. Kelly is, we can trust her. And Joel McHale gets more fed up than Bacula. Uh, McHale, he's losing it. He, he, he's starting to, his patience runs uh, thinner than, um, than Bacula's does quickly, but they, they're a really good comedy duo. The two of them at the FBI agents, they're very very amusing the whole time. And they, they cannot deal with the insanity that is Mark Whitaker, understandably. 
I love how Soderbergh uh, uses comedians in this movie the way that Scorsese populated so many comedians in Casino, but he gives them all straight roles. Right. Like, there's no, like, none of the comics and comedians in this movie are trying to be funny. Like, they're not riffing and whatever. They're right. playing it straight. Like yeah, I mean, Patton Oswalt is a very, very serious. Uh, Tony Hale. Invest- yeah. Tony Hale is really good. But and this, both of the Smothers brothers are in this movie, but none of them are trying to be funny. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's another it's like an acting school thing, but it's like when you are dealing with comedic material, actually playing it straight is what makes it funny. If you try and play things for jokes, it's never funny. Usually. I mean, there are obviously when people are riffing or whatever, that's one thing. But in here. The reason that it is so funny, they are all delivering it completely earnestly, completely uh, with no hint of the idea that they are in on the joke. They're just delivering the material as is. And because the material is funny, it naturally just becomes funny. Mm -hmm. Um, I also appreciated that this film doesn't doesn't really hit you over the head with it, but it gets you to sort of think about the role that uh, high fructose corn syrup <laughs> and lysine play in your life. Isn't uh, there's a line that someone says that like everyone in America gets uh, victimized by a corporate crime before they leave the breakfast table or something like, that, I you think, know, I think Damon says that in his voiceover. I think that's one of his voiceover lines. It could be in, or maybe in one of the FBI agents does talking about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about how how Soderbergh is sort of uh, has had a running uh, capitalist critique throughout his movies um, that there are these topics are boring. And that's one of the reasons why we don't think about this stuff, like how much uh, corn is uh, involved in like everything in our lives, including like the cornstarch that helps to make garbage bags and the cornstarch is in your glass of orange juice. And um, at one point in Damon's voiceover, he says, most people haven't heard of ADM, but everyone has eaten our products. We turn dextrose into the amino acid lysine. We put corn in one end and profit comes out the other. Yep. And that's, you know, that's uh, Soderbergh's whole thing is he's always going to attack the system. It's what I appreciate about him. It's it's less on the the individual. He, I think the way he structures the film is that Mark Whitaker is not a good person, obviously. And and I don't think we should take that from the movie that he is, but that the system is the revolting aspect of it's just, it's, it's just the way of American life and and beyond America even, but just the capitalism is the real villain of almost every Steven Soderbergh movie. That's why he's, you know, such an interesting filmmaker because he's not pulling any punches, but he's also not hitting you over the head with it. Like it's not, it's not a, a sort of, it's not a didactic. finger pointing sort of didactic right. movie about, you know, how much sugar we're all taking in. No, this is the world that uh, where white collar crime takes place. And uh, they're like little petty things that all add up in terms of global consumption. At one point, uh, Matt Damon is bragging about how he knows about the price fixing of lysine. And he says, you watch uh, in a couple of months, uh, a liter of soda pop is going to be an extra five cents. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> which is like billions of dollars when right. you think about Absolutely. everyone who yeah, buys, yeah, buys exactly. a bottle of pop. Yep. But you know, it's like, uh, it's hard to understand. And that's one of the reasons why corporate sort of crimes like this happen because the subject is so dull. Right. Yep. Fully. Uh, it's, it's, Soderbergh has a way of, I think, elevating the mundane. It's, it is so mundane and so, 
that's why it's a hard it's we talked about it. it's a hard sell it's hard to convince anybody who's like just a typical average movie goer to, to want to watch this or find it interesting because it is the topic is mundane uh but it's right in our face when you really stop once you watch this movie you sit and you go oh wait that that makes sense so now i'm drinking soda today oh, and you just start thinking about it it's something that kind of sticks in the back of your brain the the next few times you go and have like a soda from mcdonald's or something yeah uh, yeah, or or you go see the informant in a movie theater, and then you get popcorn and a soft drink. Right, exactly. And then you're yeah. hearing all about all this. <laughs> you're you're, you're, you're implicated just by sitting there in the theater the yep. with your snacks, <laughs> holding the mirror back up to society. You know, one thing that I thought was very funny: the book gets into this more. The movie doesn't quite go that far, but in the book, apparently Whitaker got the idea for taping federal agents. Uh, when he watched the movie, the firm, <laughs> no way, no, no, no. That's, that's amazing. I did not know that, but that is incredible. That's incredible. They don't depict this in the movie, but there is that one part where Matt Damon says, didn't anyone see the firm? Everything does, they did to me, they did to Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. He does say that though. He has the line about the firm, but I didn't know. I thought that was kind of just a throwaway, but the fact that that's from the book that he actually, got the idea from the firm. That is amazing. That's great. <laughs> he was like, what if we do it like the firm? You know? <laughs> and there are all sorts of really funny, like one lines that are sort of like quietly funny in the movie. Like at one point he says, I'm aware that the fraud I perpetrated was wrong. Like he's trying to convince people that he's a good guy. <laughs> right. And there's a, a good, a good fast cutaway. I think where he's talking to the, uh, Scott Bakula, and he's like, you can't be talking to the press anymore. Like, no more. And Matt Damon's like, yeah, no, I, I agree, basically. He says, like, yeah. And then it's like a hard cut to him, like, sitting in, like, a very shady, like, motel, like, being photographed for, like, uh, the local newspaper and doing, like, a full sit-down. It's a great hard cut. It's, yeah. It, it, well, the movie is kind of a laugh a minute. I really I do feel that way. I also like the part where they give him the, they say, we need a better sound recordings for these tapes you're doing. So they give him this like Nagra recorder. And then the next scene is him rolling down the window and telling his buddy about this new surveillance equipment that he's has. And he refers to himself as 007, doesn't he? He says, I'm agent double 14 because I'm (laughs) twice as smart as 007. Yeah. (laughs) And again, uh, Marvin Hamlish did the music for a bond movie and he keeps uh, doing the sort of Bondian music when, when Whitaker is running around thinking that he's a spy. But I thought, I thought some of the funniest stuff in the movie was when the FBI are all excited because they finally got the sting operation where Damon gets these guys on videotape uh, agreeing to price fixing. And then they're all sort of having a little celebration because the next day is going to be the raid on the Archer Daniels Midland company. And Damon's like, so I'm going to be okay, right? Like at the company, do you guys think I'm going to have any problems? And they're like, well, um, yeah, you will have problems. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. It's dawning on them that like their guy is maybe not bright. You know, he he seems to think that he still has a future at the company after being the whistleblower. He fully believes he's going to be the president of the company because he says they're going to the, the shareholders, the board is going to understand that what I did was acting in the company's interest. I'm the good guy here. I'm the I'm the good guy, and they'll promote me and make me actually in charge. He, he thinks he genuinely thinks he's getting like the the bad people in the company out, and ironically, he's just as bad, you know, yeah, worse. Now, one thing that 
it got sort of good reviews. A lot of critics all said the same thing, though, where they said, you know, though this movie is funny and very, very amusing, the real story is no laughing matter. <laughs> One of the criticisms that people had for the movie was that people thought that Soderbergh was making fun of the bipolar disorder by 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 staging this story as a comedy that he was sort of mocking someone with a mental illness. I didn't quite get that. I, I feel that maybe that would be a bigger deal now. I think media literacy is in hell. I think um, <laughs> I, I just I don't know. I I never once felt that way when I watched the movie that Soderbergh was was not treating this with delicacy. Uh, you know, I think a little side note here, but like my grandmother, uh, before she passed away, when I was younger, she had Alzheimer's and she, there were things that would happen. Alzheimer's is very sad. It's like a sickening thing to observe in like real life. But there were moments where my grandmother would put toilet paper in the refrigerator. And like, that is objectively now when I think about it, that's funny. That is like a funny thing. Is it sad if you like take it at its face value? Sure. But it's funny. I, I, I don't know. I think that Bipolar disorder is not funny, and we, we're not laughing at people with bipolar disorder, but Steven Soderbergh is very accurately portraying what somebody with bipolar disorder did, and I think that the things that he did, possibly because he was bipolar, is funny, and that is not the same thing as being like, ha-ha, this person has bipolar disorder. We can laugh because the situations that the person with bipolar disorder had put themselves into insane situations that are objectively funny. I don't know. I think I think those criticisms are a little bit out of touch with the reality of what we watched personally yeah i agree and i also noticed this time something that maybe these critics didn't notice is that there is a scene where um where whitaker and his wife are each talking to an actual psychiatrist and it's that psychiatrist character it wouldn't even surprise me if soderbergh actually cast a psychiatrist but it's the psychiatrist who uh, who is the first person in the movie to say that maybe the Damon character is bipolar. Yeah. He, he suggests he's like, does it run in the family? And he says, well, I don't know. I was adopted, <laughs> which is also a great reveal when you find out, yeah, that his parents yeah. are alive and they kind of both laugh about it. They're like, we got somebody on the phone that says that Mark was adopted by a rich family and we died in a car accident. And they kind of both look at each other and they like laugh. Uh, but yeah, he's the first one to suggest it. And, um, I, I also just think by the way, when we, like we talked about the reveal where the movie kind of pulls the rug out from you, uh, that's handled very, I think, delicately and not sweetly, but there's a very, it's, it's a little heartbreaking. It's really sad. And you kind of see Mark Whitaker and, you know, Damon's world collapse in front of our eyes. And he kind of, for the first time has to accept the reality of the situation. And I just, yeah, I think for any critic that's to say that, that, that takes the route that this movie was mocking or making light of bipolar disorder, I just think really missing missing the whole the whole point of the film i just i think totally out of base and i i think maybe their media criticism licenses should be revoked personally it's just my stance though maybe in this day and age um they might have handled it a little bit differently or they might have been more uh clear that we're certainly not making fun of a mental disorder in this film you know but I, I, I don't know. I, I also, and I also think that the other thing that you have to say is the movie was not marketed as a movie about someone who's bipolar. Like they didn't exploit it. I don't think. No, not at all. Not at all. I think if, again, if, if it was sold that way, then there's a different story, but I, and I really, I, I, I hear when you say that maybe we do things differently if this movie were to be made today in like, you know, 2021, 2022, uh, 
we would maybe handle the material a little differently. But I think Soderbergh's pretty unflinching when it comes to that and is kind of not particularly bothered with the criticisms of people who maybe are not particularly brilliant uh, or brilliant at reviewing movies or understanding what movies are trying to get at. I don't know if the movie's any differently if it gets made today because Soderbergh just as recently as 2019 did The Laundromat where Meryl Streep was like basically doing brownface and that was, you know, that was critically panned and a lot of people, I don't even love that movie that much, but a lot of the criticisms that people had with that movie, I think were incorrect uh, in terms of the way in which they got angry about it. Like that movie satire. And I, I think a lot of times we struggle with satire. People watch Jojo Rabbit and they think Jojo Rabbit satire and that, that's not satire. Like Soderbergh's actually making satire over here. And sometimes that just goes above people's heads because we as a nation are very bad at, at criticizing media. I think that's, it is what it is. I don't know. Well, it's like people don't understand what the definitions of words are, you know, like a satire, <laughs> like not even like don't look up doesn't even quite work as a satire either because it's right. a little too sentimental. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Satire is supposed to be biting. It's, it's Starship Troopers is a satire. Like, you know, Jojo Rabbit's not a satire. It's just, it is that simple. I don't know. I think, uh, and I, I, we couldn't call this a satire, I don't think, but, um, you know, no, I, I, I would call it a, uh, I would call it a, uh, I wouldn't quite even call it a screwball comedy. <laughs> it's hard to define. Yeah. Because this movie is so unusual. Like it's like the idea of it being a comedic thriller is a better way of describing it. Yeah. Which is, I, there's no other examples in my brain of comedic thriller. So it really is kind of a, a one of one. It's a movie unto itself. And that's what makes it so unique and interesting. But it's very moving. Like it, like it, like a lot of times in comedy, or you know, imagine a comedy thriller. Even the term comedy thriller doesn't sound like it would be emotionally involving. But this one is. Yeah. No. Completely. It's uh, you know, I, the word I keep using is heartbreaking, but I I really do feel bad by the end of the movie. I'm like, this is not as funny as it was 30 minutes ago. <laughs> We need to take Matt Damon uh, to the woodshed, though, for all the nice things we've said about Matt Damon. In the last couple of years, it feels like what you were saying about Matt and Ben, that there has been a shift. Affleck's on the upswing, and Damon seems to be on the downswing. Like, for instance, uh, Affleck had a great year with The Last Duel, and everybody's rooting for him now because he's back together with J-Lo, and they found love again. Meanwhile, Matt Damon is starring in these movies that nobody cares about, like that one called Stillwater. Do you remember that from earlier oh, this year? Oh, yes. Yeah, that was, the, that was the genre of movie. There was like a Justin Timberlake movie that kind of looked similar where it's about like a somewhat conservative looking men, like with rugged beards and hats that like your dad would watch the movie. And like, Yeah, there yeah. was a Mark Wahlberg one too, and they all had the same yeah. poster. And they all came out, yeah, they were the same color gradient. They all came out within like a month of each other and and – you know, I I didn't watch any of them, but I got some friends who were like, Stillwater's actually good. And I'm like, maybe it is. I like Matt Damon, so maybe I'll watch it one day. But certainly was not uh, a box office smash, as we would say. Yeah, it just sort of came and went. Was that the movie where Matt Damon was congratulating himself on not using uh, homophobic slurs? Yeah, it was, in, it was in between that and The Last Duel. I think there was a press, you know, I think, because I think that movie was about like reckoning with like a new age and a new uh, era and kind of... Um, 
conservative conservativism and uh yeah he he let it slip that you know his daughter taught him to no longer say the f slur and it was like dude what are we what are we doing here well it's like do you need a child to teach you not to be homophobic <laughs> Right. He's like, I think he's, Are you I think like 52 like, years old or something? And you <laughs> now you've decided not to be homophobic? And he's a Boston guy. So, you know, I don't, I hope I'm not alienating any of your like Boston listeners, you know, but uh, this isn't, this wasn't shocking news. Like when I read that, I went, you know, I know friends who are Patriots fans, this checks out. But, uh, but uh, I just think, you know, I'm happy that Matt Damon's not saying those words anymore. I think that's awesome probably should have kept that one to himself and i'm sure if his pr team knew that he said that they would have been burying burying that uh that piece that would not have seen the light of day i don't think well it seems like something that you would say 10 years ago would get a standing ovation but now people yeah. have just had it with that kind right of stuff. that's like, like if you say that in 2008 i'm sure a lot of people are like that's awesome great but it's 2022 you were 2021 when that came out you just that's not if anything, you're just going to get the that's you're going to get backlash. You're not going to get the sort of praise or uh, or um, you know, you're not going to be considered virtuous. You're going to be condemned, I think, for for saying those things, rightfully so. But here's the thing that bugs me: um, Matt Damon is now doing ads for Crypto.com. <laughs> I found this quite shocking. I think of Matt Damon as being a sort of trustable and trustworthy guy. He does a lot of narration and he's usually brought in to be the sort of the guy that you can believe. He he narrated that documentary called Inside Job that explained the financial crisis. And right, know, yes. he was obviously chosen to be the narrator because he is a trustable voice, you know, like and that's one of the reasons why he's so well used in the informant, because we we want to believe that everything he's telling us, even if it sounds weird, is coming from a good place. Right. And so that's what I find distressing about Matt Damon being the pitch man for, uh, you know, cryptocurrency. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i just upset that they didn't, like, manage to get him to say, like, I woke up and all my apes were gone. Like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I, I saw, I've seen the trailer, or the trailer, Jesus. Yeah, the trailer for the crypto, the, the new crypto Matt Damon movie. I've seen the commercial Many times during, you know, uh, football days, and I saw it at the movie theater. I think they play it. They don't play it at the AMC. They play it at, uh, I think, Regal has it. Uh, you guys get Matt Damon crypto ads in movie theaters? And the Regal cinemas. I, I, I usually, I'm an AMC frequenter, but if you go to Regal, they usually play it before. Instead of the Nicole Kidman ad, you get the Matt Damon crypto ad, and that's, like, not even a joke. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's very, it's sad because... I think what it teaches you is you can never look up to anybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like as an actor, I love Matt Damon. I've got athletes who I've grown up loving and, you know, their profile picture is like an ugly, hideous monkey. And it's just disgusting. And uh, it's sad because because you, you can only <laughs> – you're not allowed to have any idols, I think, anymore. I think once you start caring about or investing in a celebrity in any way, they are sure to disappoint you. And, you know, there's many other ways Matt Damon could have been far more disappointing. So I guess it's good that this is the the worst thing is that he's into crypto, but it is still nonetheless distressing and, and very disappointing because I think of Matt Damon as I think he's like an Ivy League and I guess maybe he's an Ivy League guy. So this checks out. But I think of him as somebody who considers himself to be sort of an intellectual and a smart guy. And for him mm -hmm. to be the voice of crypto, I feel like he's going to dupe many 
less smart men than him or women. You know, I don't want to discriminate on the the crypto. You know, many anybody can get into crypto. The world of crypto does not discriminate on gender. But uh, I, I feel like he's going to um, dupe a lot of very easily susceptible people into treading towards what I would consider to be treacherous paths. And uh, I was very sad when I saw that. I went, Matt, and it, it checks out because Ben's on the way. Ben's doing so well right now that Matt's got to keep doing worse and worse stuff to make him less and less uh, less and less redeemable in the eyes of the public. <laughs> History is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately... For them, it proved to be too much. Then there are others, the ones who embrace the moment and commit. And in these moments of truth, these men and women, these mere mortals, just like you and me, as they peer over the edge, they calm their minds and steal their nerves with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. But, like, what is a wealthy man like Matt Damon doing, encouraging his fans to flush their money down the toilet in this, you know, unregulated market? Like, it's... It, it, Maybe Stillwater did so badly that he, he needed the <laughs> check for the commercial. I don't know. Like, I'm really... I don't know what would what would encourage him to do that. I really don't. In the commercial, he's walking around in what I guess is supposed to be a museum of bravery, where we see like <laughs> astronauts and right. Wright brothers and mountain climbers. And like Damon's like, you know, uh, you know, brave. in Invest these moments of truth, crypto. fortune favors the brave. And but like buying a digital ape <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> investing in Dogecoin is not climbing mount everest no no it's not it's not flying the first plane certainly not uh it's it, it really the first time i saw it i thought it was an ad for like a new iphone it looks like kind of an apple ad it's like this white kind of background and everything and he's like walking around i, I thought it was going to be like an advertisement for like an apple watch or something uh yeah and no it ended up being uh it ended up being an ad for crypto <laughs> so you know uh I, I just it's sad because you you know there's a, some 16 year old or 17 year old who really likes Matt Damon and like oh I got fifty dollars from you know my pizza delivery job I'm gonna put that in I'm gonna be brave like Matt Damon I'm gonna I'm gonna buy some crypto maybe maybe I'm giving too much maybe I'm taking into account the power of advertising I don't maybe maybe people are just kind of watching and laughing and they don't care but I'm sure there's enough people that have seen that so there's definitely a, a few people who have watched that and we're not gonna get into crypto but because they saw their favorite actor, Matt Damon, talked about it. Now they are. And I, I find that to be just very disheartening. Now, something has changed in New York State uh, in terms of uh, sports gambling. Can you explain what it is? Sports gambling is now legal uh, in the state of New York. Uh, so before when I would gamble on sports like a degenerate, I would use an offshore bookie in Europe. Now I can safely do it with New York. And anytime I win anything, 51% of it will be taxed and gone right back to the state of New York City. But now we have, you know, FanDuel, DraftKings, and and all of those great sports betting apps that we can sit around watching sporting events and betting on them on our phones, right? Uh, with ease and comfort and availability and convenience. If it feels to me like there is some kind of like evil pact between crypto and sports. 
And I think that Matt Damon's participation in this crypto ad is sort of part of that. It's this sort of like finance bro kind of stuff. And like, uh, you know, the, the, they just renamed the Staples center where the Lakers play is now the crypto.com arena. I can only imagine what the commercials for the super bowl are going to be like. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I know LeBron James cause he is a Laker and he plays at that arena, but he recently did a thing cause he opened up a school in Cleveland actually for, uh, you know, kids back at the, I believe school, I think is what it's called. I think he did that in 2017, but I saw a thing today on Twitter about how there's going to be classes teaching kids about the importance of like web three and like crypto and NFTs and blockchains and, and all that. And that's like now going to be curriculum at like LeBron James school through crypto.com arena and i was like oh my god we are such a depraved society but matt damon is a notable huge boston sports fan big red Sox, big patriots guy big tom brady guy so it's not shocking that one of the more vocal fans of you know fans of sports uh, in the acting community is the one that gets hired to be the uh, actor that is going to be the voice of that yeah there's a weird weird connection between Fans of sports gambling and the FanDuel ads and the DraftKings ads, they get Jamie Foxx. And Jamie Foxx says, you can be great. You can go win money like the players. It's this very seedy enterprise where kind of all of this is is kind of in a conglomeration. And I, I don't think that gambling on sports is nearly as nefarious or, or stupid. At, well, maybe it's a stupid because it is stupid and I've lost money doing it. But it's not nearly as nefarious as you know cryptocurrency or NFTs or whatever. But there is a weird connection and uh and ties to all of them that i i think you're on to something there for sure yeah and i was just thinking watching the informant and all the respect that i have for matt damon as an actor here he is but he's being an unreliable narrator in real life <laughs> that's not that's a perfect that's a perfect way to tie it all together because he he uh he probably thinks of himself as a good guy, probably thinks he got a nice little paycheck and he's doing a good thing, you know, teaching people how they can also make money and, and be on, you know, the side of growth and industry and capital. But in reality, he's a fucking idiot and he's causing a lot of harm to, to, to foolish, you know, consumers, just like in The Informant. <laughs> Well, Mike, this has been wonderful. I was so glad to get to talk to you. We've been planning this for a little while. Um, would you uh, like to tell our listeners where they can find you and what you're up to? You can find me on Twitter at M-M-E-K-U-S-18. It's just my name, Mike Mikus. Uh I'm a writer. I'm a freelance writer. So if anybody needs somebody to write about movies, television, <laughs> music, hit my DMs whenever because I'm always uh, available. I blog at MikeMikus.blog. And I'm currently writing for a website called theplayground.com. And the P is actually a nine, so it looks like the nine layground. But uh, it's a friend of mine uh, back home in Tampa who's trying to cover and kind of create a, uh, a scene that covers local artists and independent artists. So I've been writing about a lot of local and independent artists in the Tampa, Sarasota, Clearwater area. So you can find me there. And of course, on Twitter and Instagram at mmikas18. So yeah, hit my line and... Jesse, it was a pleasure. I was, I've been looking forward to be talking about one of my favorite directors, a movie that I love, and it was great doing it with a, on such a wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, please come back. You are officially invited back on the show. Well, I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to it. Next year, we'll, we'll watch 
some awful Matt Damon conservative movie where he stops saying the F slur and uh, we'll gladly <laughs> review it. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you name the movie. I, I trust your instincts. Mike, welcome. Oh, sorry. Mike Mikas, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Jesse, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We'll have another episode of Junk Filter in the next few days. Coming soon to the podcast, Jacob Backrack is returning. We're going to be talking about two more films by the director Costa Gavras, State of Siege and Missing. Just a reminder, we do have a Patreon. Patrons get access to additional bonus episodes every month. Please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you for listening. <laughs>